interesting. I have to say, softball doesn't seem to go with February. That seems <laughs> <laughs> that's advanced planning right there to be talking about softball when it's snowing outside. <laughs> well, we have the privilege of uh, being instructed by God from his word this morning. So we're studying the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 9. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, we will show the text on the screen, too, if you don't have that. We're going to get right into it. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, and then, and then pray. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Um, there are deep wells of passion here in what we read that um, we might have trouble getting a hold of um, or seeing how they apply to us. So, Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see. Um, there's a, there's a, a tap into your heart here. There, there's a sign of your own passion for us in these verses. And so we ask you to refresh us in the knowledge of it and to give us some of what Paul is speaking about here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a statement in this passage. I think it's shocking. <laughs> Maybe you, uh, we went through it quickly and you didn't catch it. Um, but Paul thought it was shocking and he knew it when he wrote it. Because uh, he starts out saying, basically, uh, you're going to think I'm lying when you hear what I'm about to say. You're going to think that's not true. That's an exaggeration. Nobody would say that re realistically. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's setting us up. So, okay, Paul, you've got my attention. What, what are you not lying about? <laughs> what is so hard to believe in what you're going to tell me here? It's this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's what that means in the longer version. Every day I am distressed and tormented by the thought that my brothers, my fellow Israelites, are not saved. That they are going to be cursed. That's what's on my heart. 
not kidding, every day. It's great sorrow. It's unceasing anguish. He thinks this way. They're they're headed for what I wrote about in chapter 2, which is that there's a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, a day when he will render to each one according to his works, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's what he's thinking about. He says that's that's what's in their future unless something changes. And the only way that it can change, the only way to avoid that is by what I wrote about in chapter 3 which is to be justified, meaning declared righteous by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, there's a sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous judgment for our sins. It is Jesus dying in our place on the cross which purchases our release, our redemption. He buys us off the slave market. He he frees us from death row. He liberates us from captivity to the devil. He did all that on the cross. And by faith, we receive this. It is received by faith in Jesus as Savior. By, By faith in Him, we are redeemed. We are set free. We are declared righteous in God's sight. And Paul says, I'm torn up about the fact that my fellow Jews have not received this. They have not put their faith in Christ. They did not recognize him as their Messiah. And I'm so distressed about it that I would be willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ for their sakes. Meaning, I would be willing to experience God's wrath in hell in order for them not to. Let that sink in. That does sound almost unbelievable, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds a little bit like crazy fanaticism, you know, Um This can't be right. It's got to be some overactive conscience, maybe even mental imbalance, that you could wish that you would be tormented in hell for somebody else, cut off from God's grace. But Paul says, I'm not lying. God is my witness. If my being cut off from Christ, if my being cut off from all of God's grace and mercy would guarantee eternal life for my kinsmen, I would do it. So what should we think about that statement? (laughs) And what are we to learn from that? Well, I think think the shock factor here, I think it's here for a reason, which is to make us consider our own concern for the salvation of other people. Does it matter anywhere near that much to us? Should it matter that much to us? And if it should, how do we grow in it? 
Because if you're like me and you hear that, you go like, man, I'm not there. I'm not. So how do I grow in that? Should I grow in that? Um, that's what we're going to think about this morning. We're going to try to understand how, God, how Paul got this passion for souls. Um, because obviously it was a driving force in his life. Nothing else can account for why he was willing to keep going from city to city, preaching the gospel, getting persecuted everywhere he went, beaten, stoned near to death, thrown in prison, eventually killed. And nothing else could account for him going on and on and on and on like that unless there was this inner passion driving him. Guilt would never do it. A feeling like I have to would never do it. It has to be deeper. It has to be within your bones. And it was. And some degree of that passion is needed if we're going to fulfill Christ's commission to the church, which is to go and make disciples of all nations to let the nations be glad, like we were singing about. We might not have Paul's gifts, we might not have Paul's calling as an apostle, but we do have a place in God's plan to rescue people from their sins, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it takes a passion for souls to be a part of that. So whether you already have that passion or whether you see it lacking in your life, I think there's encouragement here to grow in it. And I think... As we grow in it, we will also experience the other thing that Paul experienced. Yes, he had the unceasing anguish, but he also had joy. He said, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And he was watching and seeing people come into the kingdom as he proclaimed the gospel. As he put himself out there in the midst of trouble, he saw God move on people. And so will we. We can't decide how many how, or when or anything, but God blesses faithfulness. So this is something I think we can grow in. And it's a joy to be a part of it. Um, it's joy like the father had in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, when the son comes home, uh, he said, It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to be into that joy. I want to experience that joy. Uh, that there's lost brothers out there who, who, who are yet to be found. And when they're found, as we witness, there's joy. There's reason to celebrate. I think that helped keep Paul going. So let's think through this. Let's see how we can cultivate a passion for souls. Um, let me start with this statement. The ultimate source of a passion for souls is Jesus Christ. He's the original. <laughs> He's where this all begins. Here's how we see that. Paul said in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Well, truth be told, Paul knows that he can't be. <laughs> I could wish it. But I know that I can't. I know that I can't be accursed and cut off from Christ. He cannot be cut off from the grace of God that comes to us through Christ. Why? Because he just wrote chapter 8. <laughs> and chapter 8 says, Those whom God justified, 
he also glorified. So if you have been cleared of all your charges and have Jesus' own righteousness credited to you by faith, you are justified. And if that's already happened, the glorification is going to happen. It's it's a package deal. They go together. (laughs) There are no dropouts in between justified and glorified. There's only both. (laughs) Paul knows that. He just wrote that. He's part of the people who are justified. He knows I cannot be accursed. So when he says that he can't be accursed, he knows that he can't be. um, But there is someone who could and who did. There is someone whose own passion for souls put that kind of passion into Paul by demonstration. And that's Jesus. See, Jesus actually did what Paul said he wished he could do. Jesus was accursed, punished by God so others could live. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was cursed. God did pour out on Jesus his righteous judgment. Not for his sins, he didn't have any, but for our sins laid on him. He became for us a curse. He became the most cursed individual that ever lived as all of our sins were poured onto him and God counted him as guilty of it. And he received wrath. More than just nails in in hands, but God turning away from him. No grace. He was cut off from God's grace. Isaiah said he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So yes, Paul's passion for souls is hard to believe but only because the passion of Christ for souls is hard to believe. It's hard to comprehend the love of God for sinners. It's hard to believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Here's the takeaway for us. The Lord would grow in us this same passion for souls. That would be his desire for us. It is his desire for us. Because we learned in chapter 8 that God's goal in saving people is to conform us to the image of his Son, You know, he's not only about forgiveness of sin and giving us eternal life, though he is about that. But what does eternal life consist of? It consists of conforming to the person of Jesus Christ, to his image, to his character, and even to his um, resurrected body that we'll also have at some point. Uh, That's where it's all going. And so if we're going to be conformed to the image of of his son, then we're going to take on to some degree this self-sacrificial love of the son for us, for sinners. 
And Paul is maybe the most towering example of this um, that we read of, you know, apart from Christ. But he's been followed by many, many more since. So it's, it might do your heart good to read some of the, the missionary biographies of Amy Carmichael and Gladys Aylward and David Brainerd and people like that, Hudson Taylor, to just read about the sacrifices that flesh and blood humans, fallen humans like you and me, did. <laughs> that there was a work of grace that overcame the reluctance and the self-centeredness and, and the fears and, and opened up this world of service for the sake of others. It, it happens. But how does it happen? I mean, how do we grow in this? Well, like everything else about being conformed to the image of Christ, God uses means to do it. Uh, the heart for the salvation of others is supernatural, but we can place ourselves in the path that leads us in that direction. There is something for us to do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So, what are those ways? Well, I can see a few here in the passage. And so, we'll look at three of them. And here's the starting point. <laughs> Here's how we cultivate a passion for souls. Is first of all to embrace the good of the gospel for yourself. You have to em embrace the good of the gospel for yourself. That's where it starts. Remember the context of Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish? It's the soaring promises of all that is ours in, in Christ in the previous chapter. It's all the things that he just wrote about. Remember what's in chapter 8. It began with this realization that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, to be in Christ is to know that your relationship with God's law has changed. Although the commands of God are all right, and to break any of them is wrong, the person who is justified will never experience God's righteous judgment for breaking them. Think of that. As the hymn writer said, the judgments of God's holy law with me can have nothing to do. Think about that. Because my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Chapter 8 also says the believer in Christ has the Spirit of God dwelling within you. The Spirit is life. He gives life to your mortal bodies. So God doesn't just change your relationship to His law. He comes to live in you by His Spirit. He gives you the power to change day by day. He's making you into a new person. Already you've changed kingdoms. You were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of the beloved Son. Your position is completely different than it was, but there's also this thing working out in you, what we call sanctification, and you're becoming more and more like Jesus because the Spirit is in you. And this Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that He's a Father, and not the kind that we are with good days and bad days. He's, he's the kind that's always doing the right thing, always loving us, always taking care, care of us, never leaves us as orphans, never lets us just fend for ourselves, though, though sometimes it can look that way. 
The Spirit helps us to know that we've been adopted. Chapter 8 says that God is bringing us, bringing believers into a glorious future called the redemption of our bodies, the creation set free from its bondage to corruption. That means a glorified you in a glorified world with the glorified Jesus. (laughs) That's great stuff. No eye has seen or or heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is all part of the promises, the package of of being justified. And these things Paul's been writing about, these are the things that are feeding his own soul. He's been eager to share it with others. He spent eight chapters writing about it. And so having communicated all this to the Roman church, where does his heart go next? To the people that don't have any of this. to the people who are not in the church, to my kinsmen according to the flesh, my fellow Jews. I have great sorrow when I think about the fact they aren't experiencing any of Romans 8. You see, the more deeply you enjoy the grace of God in Christ, the more deeply you will feel about bringing others into it with you. It's a natural thing to want other people to join with you in your joy. Isn't that true with other things? Like when you see a great movie, right? You come out of the theater, you're like, you know, you start talking to people, man, you got to go see that. You got to go see that. This is the greatest movie, you know? Or, you know, there's a great sale going on right now at Kohl's. Get down there. (laughs) But you won't share things like that if they don't first excite you, right? And if they excite you, you share it naturally. You don't, nobody has to tell you to do it. You just do it. But you won't do that if you're not full of joy about it. And so it is with wanting to share about Christ with other people. If you aren't seeing what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, if you aren't experiencing what he called the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, if you don't think that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him, from Colossians 2.3, then you won't have any natural incentive to lead other people to Jesus. And truthfully, we can struggle to see Jesus that way. Because if your life is hard, and I know that it is hard for many of you, those doubts creep in. Like, does trusting in Christ really do anything for me? My life is hard, and I know people who don't know Christ, and they seem to be doing great. So what do I have to tell them? They're actually doing better than me. Christianity can seem like a bad movie that you don't want other people to see. But remember what's included in all the great promises of chapter 8 for believers. Suffering, tribulation, 
distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. That's also part of the package. And not only that kind of suffering, but the inner struggle, the grief that we have over our remaining sins. Romans 7.15 is a Christian experience too. Paul said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's this remaining struggle within that grieves us. And so we have that, we have the internal, we have the external, and so sometimes we're like, I don't know if this is so great, I don't know if salvation is real, um, so why would I even tell anybody else about it? But in all those things, we have promises. We have assurances from God, like Romans 8, 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There are assurances that we have that you don't have if you're not in Christ, no matter how good your life looks. A person might look like all is going well, but remember what Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It is far better to suffer with promises than to be untroubled without them. So yes, your life can be hard in many ways. That's part of the human experience. But when we can see, when we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we find reason to rejoice anyway. Like Paul, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And the more you feel joy, the more likely you are to share it with others. You're more likely to say, I I have seen a great sight. I, I have experienced a great love. I have received great promises. So come and see. Come and see this with me. Come and enjoy this. So a passion for souls has to start with embracing the good of the gospel for yourself. So go back and reread <laughs> Romans 1 through 8. <laughs> or just 8, if that's all you got time for. Or just 8, 31 to 39. <laughs> and, and recover the reality that in the moment might not be so visible to you. And ask God to give you eyes to see it again. That's the beginning. Here's another way we cultivate a passion for souls. It's as you identify yourself with others. Um, You identify yourself with them. Go back to verse 3. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Note those words. My brothers... My kinsmen. Those are relational words. Those are words that say, I have a common bond with these people. These are Israelites. These are fellow Jews. Verse 4, they are Israelites. So was Paul. He was a Jew. That was his heritage. That was the religious and cultural environment that he grew up in. Here's his self-description in Philippians 3. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So when Paul calls the Israelites his brothers, his kinsmen, he's identifying with them. He's saying, you know, I'm one of them. I, I know their life. I, I lived that life. We have a connection. We have a shared heritage. And because I'm one of them, I want them to have what I have. Unless we think that it was easy for Paul to feel a connection to his fellow Jews, it was not. Remember how they treated him when he became a Christian and started preaching the gospel. Acts 9, 20-23 tells us what happened. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. How did they respond to that? When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. His kinsmen became his enemies. And from then on, almost everywhere Paul went and preached the gospel, in the synagogues, they persecuted him. His, his brief report from 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25 is telling... He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, my kinsmen, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You might think Paul had a pretty good reason to just write off his kinsmen, his Israelites, and say, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done with them. You know, good riddance. I'm not one of them anymore. Now I'm a Christian. But that's not what he did. He didn't allow himself to get hardened to his fellow Israelites. He continued to call them my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He kept his heart warm towards them by identifying with them. Now, why does that matter for us? Well, you go back to the illustration of seeing a movie that you really like. Who are you going to share that with when you're all full of excitement about that thing? Um, you're probably not going to go up to some random stranger on the corner you know, and go, hey, you know, I just <laughs> saw this great movie right here. You should go down there. Who are you going to say that to? You're going to go to your friends. You're going to go to your family. You're going to go to people that you care about, people that you feel some connection with, right? That's who you share your joy with, people you identify with. So also with sharing Christ... We need to feel some connection to the people around us. We need to see them as kinsmen in some way, as having a shared situation with us. Because as long as we see people as just part of the landscape, um, as long as we see people as faces without names, um, or especially as enemies or threats, we aren't likely to have a passion for their souls. We aren't likely to share any good news with them. But factually, we have a lot in common with everybody around us. Even if they're from a different race, even if they vote differently than you, even if they raise their kids differently, even if they have money and you don't, or any other difference that you think is significant, we have a lot in common. Just to name a few things, we are all made in the image of God, every one of us. Everyone's made in the image of God. That means God has invested in every human being a capacity to know God and bring Him glory unlike anything else in all of creation. Nothing else in creation is as much like God as you and me and everybody around us. 
That's our intrinsic worth right there. That God has made us the crown of his creation. It makes everyone worthy of a conversation about Jesus so they can reflect his glory, so that they can step into the design that God intended. Like everyone else, we've also sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. So we can never look at somebody else's sin life and think, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. Like the Pharisee in the parable, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector right here. Well, actually, we are like other men. All have sinned and fallen short. Well, yes, we are like them. Maybe you haven't done their exact sin, but you've got your own. As a believer, your sins are forgiven, but you haven't stopped doing them completely. The main difference between you and the unbeliever is just the grace of God. (laughs) We have very much in common. We also have the same need for the same Savior. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10, We have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. That doesn't mean that all are saved. It means we all have the same Savior, the same need for the same one. So we have common ground with everyone around us. And if we don't think of that way, if we have an us-them mentality, if we won't care about somebody else because they seem like a threat or they make us uncomfortable, we aren't likely to have a passion for their soul. We aren't to see them as enemies, but as kinsmen and ourselves as one of them, people who have a connection. Non-believers aren't fundamentally different from believers in what they want out of life. They want to be happy. They want to avoid pain. They're just pursuing that in different ways to achieve those ends, but you can relate to that. What they don't have is the only person who can give them those things. For eternity, which is Jesus. And we have Jesus. So we can share that with our kinsmen. Passion for souls grows as we identify with others. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus didn't remain aloof and go, you know, all those sinful people on earth, man, just get rid of them. Just, ah. He comes in a person, and he goes through life like we go through, and he subjects himself to the same temptations, the same trials of this life, so that we can relate to him, and he can show us he relates to to us. He connected. He identified with us to the point of taking on human flesh. We can do the same if we purpose to do that, to think that way. Not my enemy, my kinsman, according to the flesh. Same, we're cut from the same cloth. 
We all need the same Savior. One more insight from the passage about getting a passion for souls. Look beyond appearances to the peril that people are in. Look beyond the appearances. When Paul said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, it is implied that his brothers are themselves accursed and cut off. You'd like to trade places with them because that's where they're at. They're not saved. Their sins are not forgiven. They are not participants in all the blessings of the gospel. And that might be surprising because an onlooker at Paul's kinsmen, his fellow Jews, might think they're doing just fine. They're not accursed because of this description in verses 4 through 5. Here's what he says about them. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What does that list tell us about them? Well, it says outwardly we can see that the people of Israel had many spiritual advantages. Special privileges that God gave to the race that they should know Him in a way that no other nation would. Just consider what these were. The adoption, a reference to Old Testament passages like Exodus 4, 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. In other words, there's a special relationship that I'm making with them, that I'm not making with everybody. They have the glory. That's a reference probably to the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple, this, this visible demonstration that God is among you. They have the covenants, God's commitment to Abraham, Moses, and David to keep certain promises to His people on certain terms. I'll do this for you, and I have expectations about what you'll also do. They have, the, they have the law, God's guidance on how to live a life that's pleasing to Him and in their best interests. They have the worship. That's, that's the whole procedure of how man can approach God laid out in places like Leviticus, these ceremonies surrounding the temple sacrifices. They have the promises, especially including the promise that there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a deliverer, there's going to be one who will come and save his people from their sins. They have the patriarchs, leaders, great father figures, great, great heroes of the faith in their heritage, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses and people like that. They have this, this, this heritage of leaders who are, who are making this blessing come about that they're going to become a multitude and a nation. And most amazingly, Paul says, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall? God Himself came in a person, but in a particular race, the Israelites. Like, what a privilege to be, to be the, the chosen race from whom comes the very Christ Himself, the Savior of the world. So if you're an onlooker and you see this list of advantages Israel had to know God, what might you be led to believe? Well, they must be doing all right. 
I mean, God's paying all this attention to them, right? They're religious. They have all this history. They have worship services. They even have the God of the Bible. They must be in. Paul says, no, they're not in. They're out. They're accursed. Why? Because they don't recognize Christ as the Messiah. They don't see Jesus as the Savior. That's, that's the hinge. That's the turning point. That's the essential way in. The issue isn't whether you're religious, but whether you are in Christ by faith in Him. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus from Acts 4.12. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14.6. So here's the takeaway. We can't assume that people are probably going to heaven just because they're religious or moral or even churchgoers. Remember that Jesus said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You religious workers of lawlessness. There's a cultural pressure that says all roads lead to heaven. That God is love and he wouldn't punish anyone with something like eternal fire. That surely he will accept anyone who's trying to do good. And we can be lulled into complacency about that. If we hear someone say, God bless you, we might say, oh, great, they must be a believer. <laughs> great, they're Christians, they must be saved. And so we don't pursue, we want to believe that everybody's doing okay. But religion won't save you, not even the religion of the Old Testament by itself. Not even if you have all sorts of spiritual advantages. The only thing that saves you is in your heart. What have you done with Jesus? Is He your Savior? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Him and Him alone for forgiveness? That's how you're saved. It doesn't matter any of the external stuff. None of the, if that doesn't get into here, you are not rescued. You're still accursed. And how much more for the person who is not religious, who is you know, not any kind of profession of faith, atheist, agnostic, whatever, some other religion, how much more are they outside? If we'll, if we'll cultivate a passion for souls, we have to fight the thought that they'll be okay. Not so. They won't be okay. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if they hear the gospel, <laughs> if we have the love, if, if we're enjoying it ourselves, and if we're connecting with them, saying, yeah, I'm like you, and we say it, they could escape, like, like you did, if you believe. That's how God gets it done. Let me just close with this. It would be really easy at the end of this message to pour out a whole big guilt trip on everybody. <laughs> Something like, be ashamed that you aren't more like Paul. 
<laughs> get with it. We don't need that. Guilt isn't supposed to drive us to anything except the cross where forgiveness is found. Remember that for the believer, Romans 8 is still true for you, even if you find yourself without the passion for souls that Paul had. That chapter is bracketed by there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is still true, <laughs> and everything in between it. So let's not have guilt motivate us to do anything. The gospel motivates us differently. It tells us about how great our position is in Christ, how unshakable is the love of God, how sure are the promises of glory. And as we enjoy the goodness of that and we see other people as just like us who need it too, then we have more of a natural desire to share it with them. And that's the only thing that will actually make us persevere in it is when it's coming out from within. I have this great salvation. I'm secure. My future is great. And there's this word of the gospel that other people can hear and come into that with me. That's a good motivation. That one will sustain us. That's like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that all mean, by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. There's a, there's a good motivation. I have something really good. I want to share that with you. I want you to enter into that with me. Not, oh man, if I don't share the gospel, I'm going to have to tell my discipleship group about it, and I'm going to be really embarrassed that I haven't done it in five years. That, don't, that won't change anything. That, that's no motivation. But if you're experiencing it, Ha, hey, I got something to say. <laughs> that will keep us going. May God help us see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May He help us to experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. May we discover in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. And then. A passion for souls is unavoidable. Let's pray. You did this spiritual work in Paul, Lord. You've done it in tens of thousands, millions probably over the years. And that's why your kingdom has expanded. That's how people have come into it. That's how we got into it. Somebody broke the barriers. They think they, there was something that compelled them. And so, Lord, revive that in us, too. We need it. We all need it. All Christians need it. Help us to see, to see with new eyes. It is good to be saved. It is good to be in the kingdom of God. Help us to want to share its blessings with others. In Jesus' name, amen.